Howard Rodman is an author and screenwriter who's written films such as Savage Grace as well as for the 1990s anthology television series Fallen Angels. On top of this, he is also a novelist. His most recent work, The Great Eastern, released last year and has been praised as an innovative work of historical fiction. While his career isn't highlighted with big-budget blockbusters, Mr. Rodman has established himself within the film and television industry by being a champion for independent, up-and-coming filmmakers. He served as president of the Writers Guild West and director of the Sundance Screenwriting Labs, providing both a voice as well as a sense of control to budding film and television writers. Mia Funk conducted this interview with Howard discussing his journey as a writer, as well as his motivations and inspirations in preserving the art of independent filmmaking. I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak. I'm grateful to you for asking the kind of questions that make me do that thing that I spend most of my life avoiding, which is thinking about my own work and life. <laughs> um, and I really want to thank you for the larger project, which I think not only helps writers and artists to be understood, but helps us all better to understand each other. So can I express my gratitude to you for this conversation, but also my gratitude to you for the larger conversations that you're conducting? So, so tell us, I mean, you're a writer, you've, you've written for screen, you've written, I guess, one of your more recent projects is the novel, The, the Great Eastern. Um, just tell us what attracts you to these different projects because it's so diverse and there's been adaptations of historical figures. Just talk about your recent novel and this will we'll walk through some of your Sure. Novel. I mean, I think um, when you talk about adaptations, um, I think you're opening the door to something um, very central to my creative process. I mean, when I was um, a child, like I think many children, I liked uh, the world I found in books better than the world I found outside of books. Oh, yes. So it was my refuge, you know, and um, I was one of those kids where my mother was always saying, get your nose out of the book. And I didn't know how to tell her, you know, um, maybe if I liked all this better, I would, but this is more satisfying to me. And I think at a pretty early age, uh, I realized almost by accident that in the same way that I loved immersing myself in a world that somebody else had built in fiction and sort of pulling the hatch down over my head and living in somebody else's world, mm -hmm. um, that I could design my own worlds, bespoke by writing and then live in them. And those actually fit me slightly better because I made them up myself. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the membrane between reading and writing was always very, very permeable. Uh, and the distinction between the two was always pretty um, hard, hard, to, hard, hard to draw those boundaries. So I think I went from reading to writing pretty seamlessly, and both for me were uh, ways of um, keeping the world at bay. Um, you know, everybody talks about people who have a rich inner life. I think, you know, some of that is um, joyous, some of that is concerning. Um, and then I think for um, the Great Eastern, I kind of went back to my roots in a way. Mm -hmm. um, the books that I read when I was young that I used uh, to immerse myself in were pulp, um, you know, because pulp speaks to kids. And so um, 
on the kind of um, tawdrier side, there was a lot of um, you know science fiction. Um, you know, the sort of elevated stuff was the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and then sort of down here was like astounding stories or planet tales. Mm -hmm. uh, so I read all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, paper that yellowed as soon as you opened it. Um, and then I think there was uh, the more elevated stuff like Jules Verne, which was both, I think, acknowledged as literary, um, but also uh, had enough of that, you know, uh, unhealthy mental excitement of pulpy stuff to, to make it engaging for me. And so um, Jules Verne had always um, lived inside me and I had kind of forgotten my childhood love of him, although he never quite went away, but you know, yeah. my mind went elsewhere, my work went elsewhere. And then um, I guess this was in the um, early 2000s, um, somebody said, hey, on your next trip to Paris, there is a bookstore that only sells books by Jules Verne. Uh, right, I think I, right. I know right. this one, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know uh, it was called uh, Liberie Jules Verne. Yes, I remember uh, passing that. Is it still open? No, it is not. Huh. It is now a travel agency. Oh, okay, well, it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it had a, a nice little banner that said Lille Mysterieux, and I went there and um, walked in. I was certainly the only person in the store, except for the proprietor, a man named Michel Rotel. And um, there were nothing but books by Jules Verne, and they were all on, on three walls, and they were gorgeous. I don't know if you've ever seen the Hetzel editions of Jules Verne. I've seen some of those beautiful editions. They're really, um, yes. They're gorgeous. They're sort of red leather with gold intaglio, and there's elephants and, mm -hmm. and armillary spheres and astronomical instruments and static electricity generators and um, boats and monsters. And so... I found a beautiful, beautiful volume of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, 20 Milieu uh, Sous le Mer, mm -hmm. and um, indicated in the best French I could muster that, you know, how much was it and I wanted to buy it. Mm -hmm. And he took that and um, um, Mysterious Island and held them up next to each other and said, uh, what is the passage between those two books? And I said, well, they both have Captain Nemo in it. And then he held up Mysterious Island and uh, the children of Captain Grant and said, what is the passage between those two? I said, well, Captain Grant's in both of them. And he sort of smiled. And then he said, uh, wait a moment. And he went to the back of the shop and went down into a door that led to the basement and didn't come back. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, what is the etiquette in France? How long do I wait in the bookshop for him to reappear? What if he never reappears? What if he <laughs> dies when he's down there? You know, am I obliged to wait here forever? <laughs> and about 15 minutes later, he came back with a copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but not in one of those glorious bindings, but in the kind of marbled blue and black thing that you would see on the cover of a, of a student's cahier. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, um, and he said, um, pointing to the book I wanted to buy, he said, uh, I will not sell that to you. Mm -hmm. And I said, why not? He said, that is for interior decorators who buy books by the yard for the homes of the haute bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. 
and you are a reader and you love Monsieur Verne. And so I would not do that to you. And so instead of the book that I was holding that would have been, I don't know, four or $500, he sold me the exact same book, but in more uh, working class covers um, for about $18. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, that, um, so I would come back every time I went to Paris. It was my first stop, you know, um, and uh, he would whip out a, a chess board and we would play chess. He would beat me. I later learned that he was a chess master. Um mm -hmm. And I would keep coming back and we would talk about Jules Verne and my imagination was on fire. And then one day I went back and um, there was a little note on the door that said, you know, by appointment only with a phone number. And I called and received the news I think I'd been dreading to receive that Monsieur Hotel had passed away. Yeah. And um, I think it was at that moment that I wanted to create a world as deeply satisfying to live in and as comfortable for me as I felt during those hours I spent in his bookshop. Um, so it, it, it was a kind of recapitulation of, of what I did in childhood, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that we talked about was at the end of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Captain Nemo dies definitively. Yeah. But then in Mysterious Island, there he is again. But at the end of Mysterious Island, he dies, definitively. But what if um, the second death were as provisional as the first? I mean, you know, it seemed to me that there was li license there to bring him back yet again. So I think I decided to satisfy, I think, my inner urgings, to satisfy my love of Jules Verne, and also as a kind of gesture of gratitude to Monsieur Rotel, who had provided me a place where I felt at home. And I don't feel at home in the world very much, very often. Right. So for all of those reasons, I decided to bring Captain Nemo back. And then I thought, um, well, um, you know, um, we need to give him something to fight against. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Mysterious Island, um, but at the end of it, you know, on his deathbed, he reveals that something, you know, in 20,000 Leagues, we know little about him other than he sort of has a beard and dark skin and the French, you know, Aranax and, and doesn't know what to make of him. And he speaks a language that, that no one, uh, that the French don't understand. And at the end of Mysterious Island, you find out that he was Prince Dakar from Bundelkund in India. And that, you know, after the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857, when the English murdered his wife and family, um, he decided to have no more truck with civilization and certainly not with imperialism. And he was going to disappear under the waves forever with a broken heart and live away from civilization, except whenever he saw a British ship, he would sink it. <laughs> so, uh, I decided, well, let's have that character, but then you have to give him a nemesis, and who better than the sort of um, fundamental emblem of kind of blind American appetite than Captain Ahab. Um, and I think during some of the time that the book was gestating, um, you know, the war in Iraq was going on, and uh, certainly the description in Melville's Moby Dick of, um, um, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale seemed to me to be a very apt metaphor for the United States of America. Um, 
So I decided that, you know, particularly since we were at the time, you know, looking for people from that area of the world to hunt down and kill, it seemed to me that Ahab would be the right kind of nemesis for our Indian prince repurposed as Captain Nemo. Mm -hmm. So I decided to set the two of them against each other and made notes and notes and notes and notes and reread Moby Dick and found myself completely captivated. I think it is, you know, hands down, the great American novel. I think everything that comes after it is so deeply indebted to it. So basically, if you want to be um, brutal about it, um, this was Ahab universe, Nemo universe crossover fanfic. Um, but in my head, I was taking two imaginative realms that had lived there for a long time and sort of seeing what would happen if they talked to each other. Um, and then I thought, okay, you're an Indian prince. You've been trained at Cambridge and perhaps Sandhurst, you know, um, you're very well educated and literate, but nobody ever trained you how to build a submarine. You know, how do you do that? And then quite by accident, I came across the name Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And my first thought was, that is the most glorious name I've ever read. I don't care who he is. I love this man. Yeah. I just want to say his name forever. Isambard Kingdom Brunel. I mean, you know, when I started Transcendental <laughs> Meditation, they gave me a mantra, but it wasn't as good as Isambard Kingdom Brunel. <laughs> so, it marks you for a certain greatness of uh, imagination. Yeah. Either that or, or, or a certain grand failure, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, so as somebody who aspires to one and finds myself in the other, I identified. Um, and um, turns out he was the great civil engineer of Victorian England. He built the Great Western Railway and Paddington Station and the Avon Suspension Bridge and the first two viable ocean-going steam liners, the Great Western and the Great Eastern, uh, and so many other things. And I just thought, okay, if you're an Indian prince wanting to build a submarine or perfect a submarine, who do you get? You know, you get the preeminent engineer of that era. Um, and uh, I sort of looked at the dates and they were close enough to be sort of jammed together. If you take, you know, the, the timeline of Moby Dick, the timeline of 20,000 Leagues and the very real life timeline of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel sort of died as the other stuff was sort of beginning. So um, I decided that our Nemo would kidnap Brunel, fake his death, have his family bury an empty coffin and press him into service as a kind of unwilling captive at first to build this great submarine. So that was the kind of origin story of the novel, but it really starts from a kind of childhood inability to navigate the world without reading. And it started from a childhood inability to really distinguish between the act of reading and the act of writing. I know that what I've just told you is a very long drive for a very short day at the beach, but I hope that explains some of the process by which I arrived at the novel.
Sure. I think that that's what's so beautiful, I mean, about children as they read. I mean, and also the power of great literature or great, you know, even early children's books um, is that it, it instills in you an excitement to actually want to, you know, build these wonderful worlds and then instill that excitement to create your own world. So that's a sign of a great book. It's like, you can, you're thinking about other lives for these characters and, and you can almost not believe it when they die. It's like, it's not real, <laughs> how, could, how could you end it? Um, so that's really the power of writing and reading. And I think um, it's interesting that you say not being able to distinguish between the act of writing and reading. And, and I don't know, I mean, a writer is always a reader. I mean, so you can't, you, you can't be one without the other. There's like, you had to have been inspired by something that was on the page usually, or it was performing arts or something like that. Well, I think that's very generous. I mean, I think for those of us who read with a pencil in the other hand, yeah. um, you know, um, sometimes as readers, we're kind of interventionist and are uh, sort of, you know, on one screen is the book in front of us, on the other screen is the book that we would write if we could sort of make some slight corrections. Um, sure. But um, I think we've learned pretty much to restrain ourselves. But on the other hand, I've been very fortunate as a screenwriter mm -hmm. in being hired to do many adaptations where not only is that kind of behavior that would get you kicked out of the library mm -hmm. permitted, but they pay you for it and it's what they want you to do. Um, yeah, so. and we sh and we should say some of those um, adaptations. Um, I mean, I don't know which, which are your, your favorites, but like Jim Thompson or David Goodis. I, I do I pronounce that right, David Goodis? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can talk about that. I mean, I think um, you know when I sort of graduated from um, very pulpy science fiction, and you know, a lot of what I read was sort of just like space opera and sort of. Um, men with ray guns and scantily clad space women and, and, and you know, the worst kind of tropes. I mean, you, you've seen the covers of those magazines. They're lurid. Um, um, and then I sort of added to that repertoire sort of, you know, faucet gold metal paperbacks. Um, yeah. And a lot of that is terrible and some of it is great. It's the same with the science fiction. Among all of that pulp was also I, people who I think of as, you know, absolutely unquestionably people who have a place in the literary pantheon, people like J.G. Ballard, people like Philip K. Dick. Um, and among the pulp, there were people like Jim Thompson and David Goodis. And, and um, you know, it's hard to think of it now, but Patricia Highsmith was at the time considered a sort of, you know, pulpy genre writer. Hmm. Um, and um, these people were doing what a lot of literature didn't do at that time, which was look at life head on to look at the lives of those who were not privileged, but rather the lives of those who were doomstruck. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I loved a lot of that stuff. And I think the very first, uh, as a screenwriter, I, I was very fortunate um, in many ways. Um, uh, when I came out to Los Angeles in 1985, um, I'd spent my 20s, um, writing novels that I couldn't get published. Um, the first one, which I think could be charitably described as kind of um, insufficiently digested autobiographical material, um, um, got me a very, very good agent, um, you know, an agency that had represented Fitzgerald and Faulkner, but they couldn't quite sell the book. The second novel was much more literary and ambitious, and I liked it a lot more because it wasn't just sort of me 
regurgitating my own life and they liked it a lot less. I think they had wanted me to be a voice of a generation and I wanted to be a pretentious literary writer, which suited them far less. Um, the third novel um, um, got me a not very good agent. The fourth novel lost me that agent. So by the time I was 30, I had these four unpublished and perhaps unpublishable novels. Um, and um, I kind of gave up. Um, the pain of going to the mailbox every day to see if you would get that magic letter and then you know, three months later, getting that thin envelope that says, that has the word in it, the phrase is, you know, as you know, or while, you know, it was just too much. And yeah. it was painful going out in public and somebody would say, what do you do? And I would say, I'm a writer. And they would say, anything I might've read, or they would say published. And it was just too painful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, when people would ask me what I did, I started saying, uh, I'm a defensive linebacker with the Green Bay football team. <laughs> and they didn't believe me, but it shut them the fuck up. And it saved <laughs> me the embarrassment of having to say I was a writer and waiting for the inevitable next awful question. Mm -hmm. um, so, but all that time I've been going to movies, and this was an era when movies didn't come to you, you went to them. You know, there were no DVDs, there were no Blu-rays, there were no VHSs. Um, if, you know, you, you had to make yourself be in a city where you and the movie were in the same city at the same time if you wanted to see it. Yeah. And there were movies you had heard about, movies that are now just part of the common vocabulary, like, say, Howard Hawks' Bringing Up Baby. Mm -hmm. um, between the time I heard about that movie and the time I was actually able to see it was about four years. Um, yeah. And at one point I went to Paris because you could see more American movies in a day in Paris than you could in New York at that time. I think you still can. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think so. Can. And you know, what are the pleasures of going to Paris now? And I do hope that at some point they will let me back in again. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, uh, the past few times I've been in Paris, they put me up at a wonderful hotel called the Relais Christine. Oh, and I know that. Awesome. It's the, the, the cinema's just there. The yeah. Cinema. Yeah. And, you know, you can look out your window and see day by day these wonderful movies playing, you know. And, That's you know, around the corner from me, I have to tell you. It's like two streets away. <laughs> yeah. So I would walk, you know, there or I'd walk around and, you know, there's the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Chaillot Palace where I used to go to the Cinematheque before it moved. Or, you know, oh my God, there's the Rue Cujat where there used to be the Studio Cujat where they played all the Guy Debord films, you know, um, before um, the assassination of Gerard Lebovici and that era ended. Um, but, you know, um, for me, you know, um, I loved movies and my love of Paris and my love of movies were somehow very intertwined, as you can imagine. So I, I wrote... I had, after writing these four novels that nobody wanted to read, I started, you know, I segued kind of from writing unpublishable novels to writing unproducible screenplays. It seemed like an easy slide. And so yeah. I wrote a couple of screenplays that were very bizarre. Um, they were not calling card screenplays. They were not designed to say, Mr. Spielberg over here, look at me. Mm -hmm. They were just things that were more specific and visual than I had the imagination to write in novels. So I wrote them in screenplay form. And when I moved to Los Angeles, because my then girlfriend who later became my wife, 
mm. moved out there and I didn't want to break up mm. um, or have a long distance romance. Um, I started showing these screenplays around and miraculously got a lot of lunches and coffees out of them. Again and again, people would say to me, we love this. And I would say, thank you. And they would say, of course, we can't make this movie, but maybe you could do something else for us. And in some ways, that's very flattering. It's like somebody likes the way you write well enough to think that you actually could do this for money. Mm. In other ways, there's something very suspect about the entire process. Um, it's like the guy in a puffy vest who will come up to you at the Sundance Film Festival and say, you've just made a film which is small and interesting. Can I give you some money to make one which is neither? Um, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but at any rate, after all of those lunches, um, I was very fortunate to be hired for a small amount of money to write a screenplay for, I th think, one of my... One of my, you know, fingers of one hand favorite filmmakers in the world, who was Chantal Ackerman, the Belgian mm -hmm. filmmaker. Um, so I wrote with Chantal from an idea for a, a screenplay about a Russian taxi driver in Coney Island in Brooklyn, which she never made. But boy, did I learn a lot working with her. A uh, little bit in Los Angeles, a lot in New York, a little bit in Paris. And then... Um, I got hired to do a very low rent adaptation of a Jim Thompson novel called South of Heaven. And um, forgive the immodesty, but I did a good job, partly because by then it was my like fourth screenplay. And, you know, um, and also I think because I adored Jim Thompson and I knew how to do this. Um, I know that sounds arrogant, but it wasn't like, Somebody said, oh, here's this writer you've never heard of. Can you imagine yourself in his world? It was like, oh, boy, I get to be in the Jim Thompson cinematic universe. It's like, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. So I did that. And then on the basis of that, um, I suddenly had a career. And so um, and I think um, because I wrote sort of weird or dark, um, I don't know if it's this way where you grew up, but where I grew up, in middle school, there's a cafeteria. And like, if you're part of the football team, you sit over there. And if you're socially popular, you sit over here next to it's the a caste system. And over here, there's the goths, the burnouts, the misfits, you know, um, yeah. but yeah, that was my table. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. um, <laughs> and so that was sort of my table in the movie industry. You know, uh, it was like, you know, well, you know, um, and so I got to work for, work for and with people like um, uh, Steven Soderbergh and Clive Barker and David Lynch and heaven help us, I wrote a screenplay for Michael Jackson and <laughs> I did an adaptation wow. for Maurice Sendak. So um, it was kind of great. Um, yeah. You know, I got to work with all of these people whose work I deeply admired and I got to learn so much from them. And along the way, I got to adapt many of my favorite people. Um, and I think um, the first of my adaptations to get made was an adaptation of uh, a book by the legendary New Yorker profile writer, Joseph Mitchell. Um, although uh, along the way, uh, some in uh, on Showtime in shorter format, I adapted um, a Jim Thompson, another Jim Thompson, and a David Goodis, 
uh, and a Jonathan Craig and worked on one which was a Cornell Woolrich. Uh, those were fun. Um, yeah, I just I, was watching them today. So it's like, oh, yeah, I hope great. you enjoyed them. Yeah, it's a great anthology series. Um, Fallen Angels? Fallen Angels, yeah. yeah. And, and Fallen Angels was, you know, if you forgive, sort of where I got my wings. It was where, yeah. um, you know, and they were all done by really good filmmakers. I think because you could say to people, hey, it's a week out of your life. Come have some fun with us. So of the ones I wrote, two of them were directed by Steven Soderbergh, whom I'd worked with before. Um, one by Tom Cruise. Yeah, how many things has he directed? It's not, I don't know. It's the but... only thing he's directed. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, my sense was at the time his sort of um, apparatus looked at him and said, Tom Cruise, movie star, 20 million a picture, two movies a year, or Tom Cruise, director, 5 million a picture, one movie every three years. And they sort of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And, no, he's very and, good at producing, and he does a lot of creative things. But yeah, it's it's interesting that you got his one directing credit. Yeah, and and he was he was a pleasure to work with. Mm. Deeply respectful of me as a writer, even though I had not yet earned that respect. Mm. Uh, and um, in as a kind of footnote, the episode, the Jim Thompson adaptation that Tom Cruise directed, was originally going to be directed by a Mexican director who'd made one indie film who this was his, going to be his U.S. directing debut, and that was Alfonso Cuaron. Wow. Um, so Tom came in and kind of big-footed Cuaron, and Cuaron went to, uh, directed a different episode, and, and, and very brilliantly, too. Yes. Um, but um, it was fun. You know, um, most writing for the screen, you write something and you wait three or four years till your agent says, you know, we can't do anything more with this. But on The Fallen Angels, you write something and then the meeting where you get notes turns into a whole bunch of people pop into a van and you drive around Los Angeles looking for that part of Los Angeles that corresponds with your imagination of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, in any other situation, it would be considered delusional narcissism. Um, but in this situation, it's just location scouting. Um, so uh, that was kind of great. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's, so, it's always interesting. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this. I did enjoy discovering it because I had it, um, you know, it's a kind of a classic anthology series. And I think maybe, you know, it's early now. I think that we're accepting this. There's this renaissance in television. But I mean, a lot of things in television at that time weren't necessarily, you know, it was much more mainstream, I think. So um it's interesting the ways that's gone. I do want to later talk about, you know, the future of cinema, the future of television. Um, I sh uh, then, oh dear. Oh, well, well, I mean, <laughs> I think because you have been, you know, past president. No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. And, you know, um, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. But I mean, you have, I should say, because I didn't introduce you, probably you've been past president of Writers Guild of America. You're also an artistic director and teaching in the screenwriting at Sundance Institute. So, I mean, I think I have found the most glory, you know, the nice thing about working with the Writers Guild or working with the Sundance Lab or teaching screenwriting, excuse me for a second. Uh, water. Not, yes. um, and I can drink it with one hand. <laughs> um, is that there are all these ways where you get to think of yourself as doing something which is, you know, in some sense, writing or writing related while you're avoiding work. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. it's, so it's kind of great. Um, and it's it's interesting because if you can end up because sometimes these things where you end up you know better like you end up collaborating with people later because you're workshopping something or whatever. Um, and I don't know if that's grown out of your different um, affiliations and uh, leadership roles, but you know when you get to know somebody, you know how they think and can, ideas can grow out of that talking process. I don't know about you. I get inspired by reading, but I also get inspired by seeing other people's artwork and. Uh, or different art forms, and the com- active conversation inspires me as well. It inspires me too. I mean, um, one of the things I like about novel writing is the solitude of it. Is you know, you get up very very early in the morning, and before the coffee fully hits, you let those voices speak through you. Um, um, screenwriting is an intensely collaborative medium. You know. Um, a screenplay, you know, a unpublished novel is a novel. Uh, an unproduced screenplay is not a movie. You know, um, it requires collaboration. And the the work that I'm the most proudest of, which I'm the most proud as a screenwriter, is the product of intense collaboration with a director uh, and with producers. So. It's very different, and I think the screen work often comes out of a conversation, um, and the novel writing comes out of a conversation, but a conversation that is largely in my head, or a conversation with books and I've read and movies I've seen. Yeah. The, my first published novel, which came out in um, 1989 in French, and finally in 1990 in English in the U.S., um, was a product of my love for the movies. It was set in the uh, filmmaking community of pre-war Germany and had among its um, fictional characters, the great German filmmaker Fritz Lang, his wife and his scenario writer, Thea von Harbu, with walk-ons by people like, you know, Fred Zinnemann and Bertolt Brecht and people like that. And, and, Desti- and would you say it's Destiny Express for those? I don't know what it was called in French, so. In, in French, it's called um, Langopolis or Langopolis. Oh. Um, and um, in Italy, it's uh, Treno de Notte um, and uh, has lots of different titles in lots of different countries. Mm. Um, but in English, yes, you're right, it's Destiny Express. And... Um, you know, um, and that too was, you know, in, in some ways a piece of, of, of alternate history or, or fan fiction. You know, um, you know, in 1933, Fritz Lang was offered the position of being the head of the German film industry by Joseph Goebbels and took the next train out to Paris and then to the United States. Um, his wife and closest collaborator, Thea von Harbu, with whom, who had written the scenarios for things like uh, M and Metropolis and all of those other films took the exact same historical circumstances and the exact same body of work and said, this body of work points inexorably towards staying and making films for the Nazi regime. So I wanted to talk about what that moment was like and how two people could collaborate so intensely and then look at that collaboration in two completely different ways. Um, so that was, you know, the kind of impetus behind that. And then, of course, as an added bonus, I got to do all of those film noir stuff in the writing. You know, you got to have, 
you know, I got to have trapezoids of light spilling from under doorways. I got to have, you know, <laughs> cobblestone streets at night illuminated only by the penumbra of a street lamp. You know, I mean, you know, I got to go to town uh, in my sort of um, German expressionist um, lighting kit. That's yeah, that's great when the, the material gives you permission. And I'm wondering, because we didn't, you know, um, when you're writing about um, that period or you're writing, um, you know, about Captain Nemo, this, oh, the, all this other period, that this, these very interesting periods, these very interesting linguistic periods, or you're absorbing the language of Melville or whatever. Um, how does, how do you approach that? I mean, it's in your research or into making sure you have that verisimilitude. That's a great question. Um, I love research uh, for many reasons. One is you can spend a whole day of researching and you can call it writing, um, you know, and you know, in the pre-internet days, I did a lot of research in libraries in the New York Public Library, particularly uh, the 42nd Street branch and, and a couple of the branch libraries. And um, also at the Museum of Modern Art in New York where they would, um, you know, I had no credentials. I was a guy with three unpublished novels but they understood me and they would sometimes um, screen archival things so that I could see them, particularly the Fritz Long movies. Um, you know, um, Spiona and uh, uh, Spiders and things like that. Um, but um, I think for me, um, I love to know all of the little details. I want to know what was the weather like in Berlin in March 1933? What did they use to glue carpets to the floor and what did it smell like? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the engineering work of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, I did a pretty deep dive. And uh, I must confess that I love my research so much and have such a hard time letting go of it that the first draft of the Great Eastern, the ratio between what I learned from research and what was in the novel was about one to one. Um, everything I found online and in libraries. And I, most of my research for that book was not um, sort of Wikipedia research, although there's a lot of that, but obscure out-of-print books, which you used to be spend a lifetime looking for, now you would arrive at your doorstep two days later, you know. Um, yeah. you know or um, Isambard Kingdom Brunel's diaries, which are, you know, locked up in Bristol, but you can, you know, you can get to them. Yeah. Or um, diaries of, of people who were seafaring people in the in the 1850s, you know. Two days later, that book is in your hands. So that's kind of great. I think, um, and I find that after sufficient research, it sort of lives in the front of the brain. And then when your characters are speaking through you, they have that knowledge. And you don't have to really worry about it. It just sort of seeps out. Other times you've learned something which is just so delicious that you're going to shoehorn it into that book or screenplay no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and that's why I think the first draft of, of, of The Great Eastern was 823 very self-indulgent pages, mm -hmm. which then on the advice of my agent, uh, she said it needs to be shorter. So I cut out everything that was not essential. And then it was a very lean, mean, sinewy 802 pages. Um, 
but then apparently there was further work needed. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, I love research. I find it essential. I mean, particularly since I write so many things in period and so many things that are adaptations. And it's also difficult because in the olden days, the machine I used for writing, which was a typewriter, the machine I used for recreation, which was like the TV or the stereo, and the machine I used for research, which was my bookshelf and um, the encyclopedia, were three different things and were in um, three different corners of my studio apartment. Um, now, the machine I use to talk to you, the machine I use for writing, the machine I use for research, the machine I use for distraction from writing, the machine I use for ego gratification. Oh my God, did somebody like my tweet? Did somebody like it? Somebody like it? All those are the same machine. And it takes a great deal of discipline. And I also have software which uh, I pay for, which disconnects me from the internet. For <laughs> So that I'm not distracted by my insane and obsessive need to find out if I'm adored. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting how you say um, the necessity for ima separate imaginative spaces. And I think that you, you, you probably get around that. I mean, I, I know from writing, you get around it by creating that in your mind, even if it's all located in the same device. But it's interesting how you notice when you speak to different artists different in different disciplines, how in their own medium, um, it's very dimensional. So for instance, for me, I'm not very musical. I love to dance, but I'm not musical. I can't compose, you know, music. I've never done that. Are you sure? But when you <laughs> no, oh but God. when you speak to, um, but when you speak to um, like I have a friend who's a composer. I mean, when he talks about it, it's like it's dimensional. It's sculptural. It has color. I mean, he speaks about it just as though it was a, a something that he's living in. So you're, when you're saying this need to separate out our imaginative spaces in your own domain, I'm sure writing the words on the page are not just something, you know, just. Some people consider just writing like symbols, like it's a flat thing for them. You know what I mean? And for the writer, it's like these are corridors, these are these are rooms, these are things. So I think that that uh, anyway, I'm going on about being too expensive. No, no, no but, but you're absolutely right. And, and for me, it's it's not abstract black symbol marks on a field of white or on a screen or on a paper. Yeah. It's the, the Nabokov's phrase was lexical playfields, and I feel mm. like that a lot of the time. Yes. Um, or sometimes it's kind of like a memory palace. You're absolutely right that it's sometimes like a maze. Mm -hmm. um, there's a word I learned from reading Don DeLillo, mm -hmm. which is um, there are forms of ancient writing which are called boustrophedon. Oh. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I don't have Greek. But it... Um, refers to writing that goes this way on the first line, this way on the second line, this way on the third say line. This would be a podcast. It means it goes from left to right and then the oh, right sorry, right left to left. right and then right to left and then left to right and then right to left. Yeah. Uh, Bustafadon uh, literally means as the ox plows. Oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but for me, writing leaves traces which are every bit as deep and real as, as a plow would leave on a field. I mean, I sort of feel writing that way. I sort of smell, I, I hear the path of the sentences. I smell the dirt that gets unearthed 
as the sentences make their way across the page, or the smell of the sea and the wake of the sentences behind it. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, and I also hear voices in my head, and if you want to lock me up, you can, but um, no, it's, it is it's, a very, it's very, very sensuous and physical act writing. Hmm. And I just noticed that, and I hope that we're as we move to a more, you know, our increased visual literacy, our increased digital literacy, I hope, uh, and I'm certainly meeting a lot of very young people who are very precise and articulate with their language, not just their visual language, but I hope that this doesn't displace the kind of sense, and you talked about dirt, but there's a difference between the word dirt and soil and earth, and you know, all there is a difference, <laughs> but sometimes I fear that in this generation of compression, it's just all dirt, <laughs> you know, it's just all, you know, there's no difference. Um, I actually don't share that fear. I mean, I think from teaching and also from having a 27-year-old son and knowing some of his friends, uh, I think language is largely in good hands mm -hmm. and imagination is in good hands. And I think the world may be in even better hands than, than ours. Yeah. Um, but um, the uh, fictional detective uh, Nero Wolf, written by Rex Stout. Oh, yes. Is a bibliophile, and in the opening of one of the Nero Wolf books, he takes uh, Webster's third and is ripping it into shreds and feeding it to his fireplace because the dictionary said that infer and imply were synonyms, whereas he maintained, and quite accurately, that you know, uh, I imply, you infer. Um, and um, there's a part of me that is an insufferable pedant that way as well. I learned literally last week that Miriam Webster, uh, descendants of the Webster's Dictionary, um, now say that irregardless is a synonym for regardless mm -hmm. because they're being descriptive of the way language is used rather than prescriptive of the way it should be used. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that and I retweeted the shit out of it. <laughs> because to me, this was like, you know, um, <laughs> you know, uh, this was like um, Paul Pot smashing the statues of in antiquity. You know, this, <laughs> this was vandalism to, uh, you know, a living monument, which is our language. Um, you know, uh, again, to, to quote Don DeLillo, you know, words are our only offering. And somebody who was willing to be, um, you know, I, I am a great believer in toppling statues, but not this one. I want to speak about some of your other, I don't know what we should call it. It's just an adaptation as well, of adaptation of real lives as well. Um, Savage Grace. I mean, again, the, the dark, the noir. I just enjoyed uh, seeing this film with um, starring Julianne Moore in a great performance and the Eddie Redmayne. Um, what, drew you to what drew us you to subject matter like that i mean i just when i thought it was, it was dark enough it got darker still yeah no it's a, it's a very very dark story yeah. um i mean it was really really hard to write it was really hard to get made and it's now really hard to watch so that's the trifecta um yeah. but this was an assignment uh what happened was um when joe gould's secret my adaptation of the joseph mitchell book uh, it was the opening night film at Sundance in um, 2000. Mm -hmm. um, and um, 
I ran into the wonderful uh, producer, the sort of, you know, you know, the centerpiece of the new queer cinema, Christine Vachon. And she said, um, you know, hey, Howard, you know, I'm so glad I saw that. And I said, thank you. And she said, I actually read your screenplay for it. I like it better than the movie. And of course, if anybody says that to me, I break down in tears and they're my friend for life. And then she said, we, we must find something to work on together. And you know what that means. It means like, you know, we must have lunch. It, it's, it's not a bad thing to hear, but if you take it seriously, you will waste a lot of your interior mental space. But as it turns out, she meant it. And I got a call from her several years later saying, hey, there's this nonfiction book called Savage Grace that we want to adapt, uh, doing it with Tom Kalen. And I knew Tom's movie Swoon, which is a masterpiece of the new queer cinema. It is his black and white noir avant-garde queer retelling of the Leopold and Loeb murders. Uh, it's an astonishing film. Um, and my thought immediately was, oh my God, you know, I got to work with Chantal Ackerman, now I get to work with Tom Kalen, maybe? Uh, but I had to audition. So Tom, who lives in New York, flew out to Los Angeles for a long weekend, and we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And then at the end of it, he said, I want to give you homework. Clearly, this book and these lives, it's a multi-generational saga. You could now make a, you know, 10-part limited series out of it. Mm -hmm. But we had to make an indie feature. Mm -hmm. And he said would you isolate five moments in the book that you think would be so emblematic that the audience would be able to reconstruct in their minds all the spaces in between? And I said, yeah, let me try to do that. And so I picked out five moments. And I mean, this is sort of uncanny, but it turns out he had picked out the same five. Mm. And so he said, I think we're in very good sync here. And then I said, this scares me, Tom. Uh, this story goes to some very dark places. I mean, I like dark, I like noir, but this is really disturbing and squicky and uncomfortable for me. Maybe I'm not the right person for it because um, it scares me. And Tom, who is very generous collaborator said, I would be disturbed if you weren't scared and the fact that it terrifies you only reinforces my sense that you're the right person for me to collaborate with here. Mm -hmm. So there was a long iterative process by which I would write a draft, he would give me notes, I would write another draft because he saw the film very concretely in his head. And my job was to give him the screenplay that would enable him to make that movie. Mm -hmm. And so did that, but it was, um, there, there were days of writing where I just had to be drawn into to much more disturbing realms than I like to be. And I tried to take that as a gift rather than just as a kind of nightmare. Um, and I don't think I've ever been better served in a collaborative process than I've been served by working with Tom, who both is very, very certain about what he wants and at the same time, deeply respectful of his collaborators' imaginations. He doesn't say, this is how I see it. Now, make something that's exactly what I see. He says 
said to me, in essence, as he said to Eddie and Julian and all of the other people involved, bring your best imagination to it, inhabit this fully. Because um, he's sure enough about his own opinion that he's not derailed by other people's. My name is Brett Young, Associate of Interviewer and Podcast Producer here at The Creative Process. As a Communication and Media Studies major at Fordham University, I spent a large portion of my college years exploring different forms of creative writing, whether it be short stories, television screenplays, or a feature-length script. In listening to Howard, it's comforting to know that this indecision plays a major role in discovering one's voice. I've always found myself being drawn to writing science fiction, though still I understand the paranoia of spending time on something others might view as unpublishable or unproducible. But as Mr. Rodman describes, the voices that come from the fringes of the industry can sometimes become the most captivating. There's something uncommon in the sometimes taboo subjects that are discussed in independent films. This is something which Howard values above high-budget blockbusters. Whether it be a story that delivers a particular message about the human condition or simply provides a glimpse into an underappreciated culture, there's an intrinsic value to independent films that aren't watered down by studio marketing teams and test audiences. In writing for my screenwriting courses in college, I was able to understand how an inexperienced writer can fall victim to the studio mindset. For a novice author, it's hard to teach oneself to ignore the plaguing thoughts that can lead a writer down the rabbit hole of trying to please everyone. Howard's works like Savage Grace show us that the audience isn't always meant to be pleased. Sometimes there are no happy endings. Sometimes there are no winners. If there is one marquee difference between indie films and major motion pictures, it tends to be just that. Independent, unrecognized writers provide us with voices and insight that are rarely heard from. They're films crafting a conversation with the audience, one that tends to enlighten rather than entertain. This is the art of independent filmmaking, which Howard hopes to preserve for the future. Um, I think um, we maybe line it up in the historical background, but some of the things that would be, I mean, this, so many elements of sexuality or infidelity or, you know, different, you know, attraction to, to you know, different kinds of attraction are, have been, boundaries have been pushed. But the thing is that I imagine it's difficult is writing about and writing delicately about incest. Yeah. Um, you know, um, how do you write a movie which centers around the following facts? You know, there's a beautiful and socially talented mother. There is a deeply handsome and very adventurous father. They have a golden child. The golden child, it turns out, is gay, which in another era would be fine, but they could not wrap their heads around that. Long story short, they are Americans abroad behaving badly in a way that we know from Henry James on up. Um, they hire a very um, attractive au pair in hopes of turning their golden child, Tony, perhaps into a heterosexual. Um, things did not quite work out that way. Instead, the father ran off with the au pair and um, leaving mother and son in very narrow circumstances, financially, socially, and geographically. 
and perhaps out of craziness, perhaps out of an attempt to cure her son of what she saw as his disease, the mother and son started sleeping together. So um, how do you write that? You know, um, and um, the answer was, I didn't know how to write it until I wrote it. Um, I didn't have a kind of prescriptive or a priori sense of this is how one must approach this material. I just waited for the morning when I had the courage to put it down on paper and let those characters speak through me. But um, it was a disturbing period of my life and I certainly learned things about my relationship to my own mother in writing that stuff. Um, wow. And had to dive very deep into my own childhood. I mean, let's, I mean, let, let the record note uh, I never slept with my mother. Um, but nonetheless, I think everybody's relation with their opposite sex parent is more than tinged, as as the good Dr. Freud will tell us, with certain kinds of infantile sexuality and maybe not so infantile. Hmm. And in a funny way, the noir stuff is easy. It's sort of like, you know, um, you play the red and the black comes up. You know, just when you think things can't get worse, they do. Um, you know, um, but in some ways, that's a kind of easy um, fatalism, particularly if you have, you know, 1,500 years of Eastern European Jews on both side of, sides of your family. The notion that things are bad and will get worse is an easy notion to understand. <laughs> um, but the more disturbing parts, which is that, yes, these people are monsters, but also they are human. And I think what Tom and I decided was to look at this story, this deeply disturbing story from the outside and paint them as monsters, lets the audience off the hook and lets us as humans off the hook. And the task wasn't to show the ways in which they are different from us, but the ways in which they're like us, which is much harder to do artistically. It's much harder to do emotionally as a writer and for Tom as a filmmaker. But we decided that that was really, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to implicate the audience in this, in a way that makes us question our own values, mm -hmm. then why do it? You know, if the audience leaves the theater undisturbed and unchanged, then what's the purpose of having made the film? You know, it's also interesting because the way you wrote it and then the performances, which are so subtle as well, um, are, you know, you said that she, the mother was perhaps trying to um, cure her son. And then there's this other layer when, as I was watching it, that the son seemed like he was also trying to cure the, the unhappiness of his mother because his father had gone away with the au pair. So it was just all these different, you know, layers that like he was sacrificing himself, even though he was obviously a homosexual. So it was- Yeah, all of those layers are in the, I think in real life, uh, certainly we extrapolated. Mm -hmm. And all of those layers certainly are in the screenplay. And, um, you know, uh, my mother was not trying to cure me of my sexual orientation, but I certainly spent my childhood trying to cure my mother of her depression. 
And it wasn't until much, much later in life that I realized, first of all, that wasn't my job. And second of all, it couldn't be done. Um, But I think that experience as a child certainly helped me get into Tony's character and understand not just his mother's insanity, but his deeply disturbing complicity in it. I mean, who among us doesn't want our parents to be happy? But then what do we do when that's not a goal that can be fulfilled? What do we do when that's not our job? What do we do when that role keeps us infantilized, but now we're grownups? Yeah, it's it's a strange. And then of a certain generation where women were more often stay at home, even though the mother has its very active social life, all that all the things that they one wanted for themselves or couldn't obtain because women weren't given as much freedom to pursue their dreams is all you know it's put onto the, their children. So I can um it's 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 strange. It's it was very interesting to watch. Um, I mean, what is really a kind of larger burden on anyone than the unfulfilled dreams of their parents? Mm. And uh, I had the deep good fortune Mm. of being raised by a single working mom who was herself raised by a single working mom. Right. The idea that women had a place in the world was not something I had to be schooled by feminists to understand. It was part of my lived life growing up. And as guilty as my mother often felt for trying to juggle home and career and feeling failed at both, Mm -hmm. and as guilty as my late wife often felt trying to juggle home and career and often feeling failed at both, I feel so deeply fortunate to have had the experience of those families um, because it enables me to navigate in the world better and it enables me to, it's a core from which I'm, uh, I can use to leverage ridding myself of um, other common misconceptions as well, so. Yeah, but it's it's so interesting. I don't know if we can ever truly unpack, I'm, but, uh, and I know that many people wouldn't become artists it's it's somehow linked to our childhood and our our upbringing um how and and the stories that we keep on returning to um maybe best not to analyze it too much well no but i think it's true that if you're fortunate Mm -hmm. instead of those stories being the controlling narratives of your life and being entrapped by them Mm -hmm. they become the material of your work Mm -hmm. um which at least in theory is healthier. I mean, the verdict is still out in my case, but. Um. <laughs> yeah, there's some, there are people you encounter and I don't want to, you know, who have the, you know, riddled with like, uh, like an anxiety or all of these concerns. And I really feel like, gosh, you're just, you know, peel back the layers. You're, there's a novelist hiding in there. There's a filmmaker hiding. You'll be a lot happier because then you could give those problems and concerns to your characters and you could have a break from them sometimes (laughs) and imagine how much more fulfilled your own life would be if you could dance to music that you had yourself composed oh well i don't know i'm already doing too many things i'm a painter i do my first love is writing very much my first love in fact that's clear just from speaking to you 
Oh, is it? Oh, thank you. It's funny because I'll just bring in myself a little bit because I can, my do. very first writing was a work of fan fiction, though I didn't know it, like the very first story <laughs> I wrote. I read the Heidi stories and after that I decided that I would write a story and then it was very dark because I was only five and so I wrote Heidi is Blind <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think Heidi in one of those books had a friend who was... Um, disabled. I can't remember the exact details, but I decided that she was so compassionate. A little bit Greek, but she just, <laughs> she didn't want her friend to be alone. So it's strange. But um, so it's funny how you're, you were inspired to, you, you know, encounter a book and you think I can do this. So, um, so I think uh, it's strange because it wasn't my favorite book, but uh, I saw room for <laughs> room for another development, a little bit gory. Um, but, but, but I, I want to see, let, let me turn the camera 180 degrees. So how did you go from writing what I think you ungenerously call Heidi fanfic, <laughs> the rest of your writing life and the rest of your art practice? Oh, how did, um, well, I won't go into much. I, I write all the time and I'm still always collaborating in different ways with writers I would consider much higher up on the, the ladder. Um, but, and I adore writing, but it turns out I grew up around artists. So um, painting was something I have a certain facility with. Um, and, but I just love having conversations with people. So all these kind of things evolved. And then I helped uh, launch some like literary museums of culture. And, um, centers and things like that and so it's interesting now and this project just grew which I'm very honored now that we have uh, creative and being the projection elements in the traveling exhibitions when they can start up again because we had some postponements this year um, <laughs> <with COVID. laughs> that's an understatement <laughs> yeah. so um, but we have in our projection elements besides the interviews and artworks um, creative works by people from over 70 countries and mm -hmm. I'm so honored also to have great you know institutions and um, you know universities and schools and and that we do invite I guess it could be called fan fiction but it's just creative responses so from your interview from your works um, others involved uh, and you can see some of those on our website or some of our other participating publication so that's really what I think is a real goal um is that I guess it's not to be a passive I always say it's not about passive intelligence you know it's what you're going to do with it how does that inspire your own creative process but that that's just me talking about me but um or our project which is I I love but what I also love and you must know this from working with students um I it makes me very hopeful as you said, uh, we are in good hands. We have to work with them, enable them to do, fix the problems that we may have caused. Um, but they're very committed and they're really passionate and they're really willing to spend time and, and they're always surprising me. So um, I like that because you can get down on things if you kind of, um, if you see the other things going on in the world. Well, I, I would say, you know, 2020 has been, you know, one of those years. I think March 2020 lasted about five years, and then June 2020 was about five minutes. I mean, it's 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 our sense of time, sort of, you know, is 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 compacted and distended, and um, our sense of uh, what is, you know, uh, consensual reality has gone into the dumpster along with it, and. Um, particularly in my country, perhaps a little bit, you know, uh, where you are. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, I think um, we shouldn't beat ourselves up for finding that, you know, traveling exhibitions are postponed or things aren't <laughs> settling, snapping to grid. Yeah. Um, we need to be forgiving of ourselves this year, I think, <laughs> and compassionate for what can't get done. And maybe, maybe, maybe even hopeful for the space that gets opened up, opened up by these catastrophes. I think so. I think it's made us, you know, when we can't travel, when we can't um, gather, it's made us all a little bit more artistic in that we have to imagine we are not, we can't experience it in the, in the real corporal sense. So, um, so that makes me, I mean, I see these kind of things flourishing with people who aren't artists, but they're telling their stories. I want to talk a little bit about um, the, 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 your work for the Writers Guild and Sundance, a little bit like the missions and how um, they've evolved, uh, you know, during your time there. You know, just tell me, tell me how you became involved and, and what your, your role is there. Sure. Um... Uh, let, let me start with the Writers Guild of America West, which represents most all of the people who write the things you see on big and small screens, period. Yeah. And um, the Writers Guild started out in, um, as uh, a group called the Writers in 1919-1920, which was basically, uh, they drank and they complained together as writers, <clears throat> as we do. Yeah, it's part of the job description. <laughs> Yeah. And um, then in the 20s, at the time, studios decided who got writing credit as a, a, on films. So you could write an entire motion picture and the head of the studio could decide that his son-in-law needed a credit. And your name would be off and the son-in-law's name would be on. And there was, there was no appeal from that. That just was what it was. And so the writers got together and with collective force said, we're not going to write anymore if you're going to do this, and they actually used the collective leverage to get control over screen credits. You know, we will decide them ourselves. You will not decide them for us. And I think emboldened by that, then there was, um, but so that was the first struggle. And then there were fights over minimum wages. And then uh, throughout the decades, um, fights for healthcare. So that if you got sick on the job, you know, you didn't go bankrupt. Fights for residuals, so that if people made continuing money on something you wrote, you got a share of that continuing revenue stream. Fights for pension, because the career life of a screen or television writer can be about as long as the career life of a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. And you should have something to cover you during those years when the industry considers you unemployable. Mm -hmm. So those struggles moved me. I mean, I came out of the cultural and political ferment of the 1960s, the sort of, you know, tail end of the hippie era, the leading edge of the punk era. Um, you know, those were mother's milk to me. You know, um, I believe deeply, you know, that underneath the paving stones is the beach. So, um, you know, the idea that we could get together and make our lives better, but make better the lives of those who came after us. <coughs> Excuse me. It pained me to think that generation after generation, and you know, I speak this as somebody whose father was a writer, whose brother is a writer, whose uncle was a writer, um, that 
the fragile thread of being able to make a living writing would snap in our generation was unthinkable. So I first became involved in the Writers Guild because I was writing a lot of independent films, things like, you know, um, um, you know, the movie that became Savage Race, stuff like that. Um, um, and um, I think it started, I was working on a project with Errol Morris and then um, <clears throat> the Writers Guild at the time, if it wasn't for a studio or a network, had no use for it. Um, they would either say, you know, um, well, don't tell us about it or apply for a waiver. And it felt like, I'd, it felt like having your hand mildly slapped, like, you know, if you're gonna do sort of low rent, weird little movies that were to them almost like backyard home movies, then, you know, we'll give you permission this time. And it felt so condescending and it felt so like, hey, wait a minute, this is real writing too. And I think Screen Actors Guild recognized this right away. I mean, um, the percentage of films that were covered by the Screen Actors Guild within a period of five years at Sundance went from like 5% to like 80% because the Screen Actors Guild said, wait, our members need work. And if we're, they're working in smaller contexts, then let's figure out a deal that makes sense for everybody. Share the risk, share the reward. And the Directors Guild too did that. And my own guild, I have to say, was late to the party. Um, but I think I got together, because uh, this was important to me. Uh, I didn't want to have to give up the protections of the guild just because I was writing a small, low-rent, independent feature. Um, and I didn't want people in the independent film arena to undervalue the importance of writing. Um, so uh, I got together with um, um, Mary Sweeney, who wrote The Straight Story, Tiger Williams, who wrote Menace to Society, um, uh, Jill and Karen Sprecher, Rodrigo Garcia, Bill Condon, and we formed a little independent caucus and we pushed our guild uh, first to uh, have a low budget contract uh, to cover things like the kind of things that we were all doing, and then to gradually incorporate the life of independent filmmaking into the mainstream of the guild. And that was a kind of heady and gratifying experience. Uh, this is in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And so then there was a negotiating committee and uh, somebody asked me to be on it and I said yes, and that was a real education. And so I did that, then served on the board of directors and then was vice president and then was president. And I think the goal was always the same, even as I had different positions within the guild, which is how do we make the world understand the dignity of writing? That just because you're writing for screen rather than writing poems or novels, that it is equally worthy of respect and dignity. And how do we make it financially possible for writers to continue to write? And then also in a growing industry where the major studios and networks are making, you know, if I'm to talk about the last five years, $47 billion in profits, $51 billion in profit, $53 billion in profit, largely over the expansion of the scripted arena that our work creates. Mm -hmm. Well, shouldn't we have a just share of that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, so those fights, I think, became ones that I was um, willing to participate in. And then as I gained 
confidence, was willing to lead. And one of the things that I have found the most gratifying is that the community of writers entrusted me with leadership positions in, the, in, in those fights. And I am so deeply moved by that and continue to be. Um, but really what we were operating on was a, a set of very simple assumptions at base, um, which is, uh, as Karl Marx once said, um, regardless of fluctuations in the price of beef, the sacrifice remains constant for the ox. And I think we just wanted to make sure that since we were in this situation, the oxen, um, you know, <laughs> that we, we got a share of the wealth that we were creating. Um, and that both part and parcel with that and, and as part of uh, the consequence of that, we would, my, my feeling is when you are worried about putting food on the table, you are not at your most creative you are at your most fearful. But when the financial stuff gets taken care of, it's a lot easier to be imaginative. It's a lot easier to create works of genius and free speech because um, you're not simply working in an atmosphere of fear and constriction. You're actually working in a place expansive enough where you can push the boundaries of your own creativity. And frankly, that goal was equally important to me and hand in hand with the financial goal. I mean, movies are, are and, and television are, are really empathy machines, if you think about it. I mean, it forces you to spend two hours or maybe even 10 hours or maybe even five years of your life seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And having done that, it becomes harder to walk out of the theater or walk out of your own living room and see somebody on a street corner and not be able to, even if for a fleeting moment, imagine what the world must look like through their eyes. So I think the act of writing for cinema, for television at its best, encourages and maybe even enforces our ability to see the world as others see it. And to my mind, that kind of imaginative, projective empathy is a very good place for the beginning of um, politics and social change. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's so important for that. And then also as this kind of pressure valve for society that you see now when you're in confinement or, or if you, for, for people, not, I don't mean like escape, escape too, and that's great, but this place where people can live out their dreams and desires and their fears without actually having to live them out, you know? And that's essential. That's a healing process. That's an imaginative process for those who themselves cannot devote themselves to a life in the arts. Right, exactly. You know, you see a film about incest and maybe you don't have to do it at home. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I saw how that film ended. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, uh, to pivot to some of the work I do at Sundance, um, you know, these are projects which are not commercial projects, which mm -hmm. come from artists in cinema and artists from other realms too, um, you know, um, and um, it enables points of view that otherwise wouldn't be on the screen either because somebody knows a part of the world that nobody else knows or somebody sees the world differently. And it has been so gratifying to work in labs as an advisor or as an artistic director where works like Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station, otherwise known as Fruitvale, came out 
or Miranda July's Me and You and Everyone We Know, or Ben Zeitlin and Lucy Alibar's Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, I could go on and on and on. I mean, uh, but to my mind, um, Sundance at its best um, helps give a voice to people and places that would otherwise be voiceless. And at its very best says, nobody should be forced to be a voice for the voiceless. We should all have voices. And I think what I'm proudest of in my work with the Sundance community over the past couple of decades has been helping put forward into the world the understanding that there is no one way of doing narrative. There is no one class of people who are entitled to have narrative and other people aren't. Um, and I hope it has opened up the doors for many people who would not have felt they had the permission or the room to tell their own stories or the stories of their own communities or their own families to understand that not only is there a place for it, but it is of the essence and that the work that they do inspires the work of so many others. Uh, to get back to what you were talking about in terms of your own work, in terms of art creating response in other artists, um, I go back again and again to something that the musician and um, to use that dreadful phrase, thought leader, um, Brian Eno once said, which was only 500 people bought the first Velvet Underground album, but each of those 500 people started a band. Mm. And I do think that some of the more um, adventurous pieces of independent cinema may not find the kind of audience that you will find for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But boy, will they find an audience of artists whose work is enriched and expanded in its sense of possibility by what they've done. And hopefully we build on them and other people build on our work. Um, and that's a large part of what gives me hope. And speaking, because um, we spoke a little bit about television in, in your talking about the, the future of cinema, I think it's something we're all considering now when cinemas are not open as much. It's been an interesting, very interesting time, particularly this last 10 or 15 years for, for writers who are like on television who are, who are running the show. But, you know, what are your reflections on the future of film in relation to the future of television and exciting opportunities or things that we have to uh, make sure we preserve and not to lose? Well, it, you know, it's very difficult for me to talk about this because, you know, if I worship at the temple of cinema, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, um, if you were to ask me where are my shrines, mm -hmm. they have names like Rex and Pagod, mm -hmm. you know, yes. um, or, you know, the Bleecker Street Cinema or the Thalia, mm -hmm. you know, um, or uh, the Collective for Living Cinema, or, you know, I could go on and on and on, but... Um, the movies that made me that, that made me want to make movies were movies. The movies that changed my life were movies experienced in a darkened room with other people. So that's where my soul lives. That having been said, screenwriters in an age of tentpole movies have very, very little, if any, control over their own work. Writer producers, showrunners in an age of television have huge control over their own work. People who write screenplays can go long, long periods of time between screenplays that they're paid for ever getting made. 
people who worked in television, they write it, they film it, they write it, they film it, they write it, they film it. So just from a writerly perspective, and, and that's how you learn from that feedback loop. Yeah. One would be crazy in this day and age not to look at the wild explosion of creativity and the wild explosion of employment opportunities in TV, in premium cable, in streaming, that this technological revolution has afforded us. And I think that more and more, and this is something I was talking about recently with my friend and colleague, Terry Curtis Fox, who runs the dramatic writing program at NYU. There's less and less, this is TV, hands making image of small screen. This is cinema, hands stretched wide. Really it's what kind of stories can be told in an hour and a half to two hours? What kind of stories can be told in 10 separate chunks of a half an hour or an hour? What kind of stories can best be told over five, six, seven season of one hour long chunks? Mm. And we're kind of sorting it out that way in terms of, is this story dense enough and rich enough and crucial enough and important enough culturally to be that expansive? Or is this story one that has its best impact in a smaller and more contained way? And those are debates that are ongoing and will be ongoing. Uh, I mean, I can tell you in terms of my own work, uh, I had an idea for a television series about an African-American um, policeman in Paris. Mm -hmm. I had envisioned it from the very beginning as um, a uh, television series. Um, but now I've just been hired to do it as a feature film and I'm delighted to do it as a feature film. Mm -hmm. um, my adaptation of my own novel, The Great Eastern, had originally been envisioned by the company that optioned it as a feature. Mm -hmm. But um, they looked at the landscape and they looked at the possibilities and they looked at the density of the narrative that I was adapting and said, this actually works better as a multi-part series. So now I'm doing that as a series rather than as a feature. And again, these, the, you know, these rivers can be crossed. It's no longer necessary to construct, purpose build a bridge each time you want to do that. You just go from here to there to there to here as the material dictates and as the opportunities create themselves. So, um, you know, as much as I do have cinema and heaven help us, cinephilia in the blood, mm -hmm. um, even I, a kind of, you know, acolyte of, 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 a, of a dying religion, uh, am not only recognizing in some kind of eat your spinach way, the fact that the world has changed, but learning how to revel in the possibility that different forms of narrative might afford. Well, it's, it's wonderful to hear this, to hear, to, to see behind the curtain and to, I want to thank you um, so much for um, inviting us into your imaginative world, to sharing that process and the evolution of you as, a, as an artist and the different institutions you've been involved in. So I want to thank you, Howard uh, Rodman, for adding your voice to the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviewer and producer on this podcast was Brett Young. 
Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anandolas and performed by the Athenian Trio.